Well, you've probably heard someone before say something like this. Uh, love is not just a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is action. And I remember growing up, <clears throat> had a, a favorite song by DC Talk. So I'm dating myself a little here. Uh, they were a Christian rap group <laughs> back in the 80s and then into the 90s. And they had a song about love being a verb. And, uh, and then they did a, a mash with another Christian artist about the same kind of thing. And, and I just remember as a kid um, kind of struggling with that concept because one of the things that our culture really loves to tell us and especially loves to tell children through things like Disney movies and, and all sorts of media is that love is a, just a feeling. It's an emotion. It's an experience. It's something that can grip you. And it really has to do kind of like with princesses and knights in shining armor and fairy tales and that kind of thing. And then there was the love you had for your family. And, you know, growing up, a lot of us, we had these, you know, a home where there was love there. We, we felt this love. And it really wasn't until I got older that I had more than just a mental concept of love being more than just a feeling, love being very much an action, being a verb. And I think what, what helps a lot of us is when uh, you either get married and then subsequently, if you do, have children, then you, you see what it looks like to sacrificially serve someone else. Right? And you, you, you begin to understand what love looks like on the ground. Sometimes we get those, uh, not necessarily wrong ideas about love, but insufficient ideas about love, and we apply them to the Lord. And so we've been talking already a lot about God's love this morning. We've been singing about it. We spoke about it. We spoke about God's love for Rick. We spoke about God loves God's love for us. And I think it would be really good for us to take, take a moment to look at what it really means, not only for God to love, but the fact that we serve a God, we follow a God, we're committed to a God, we love a God who is love, who is love. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to use this as, kind of as a jumping point for everything that we talk about today. And what I really want to talk about is just a, a few ideas about God's love and then a little bit about how we might respond to his love. Now, probably all of you have heard this verse before, God is love. Have you heard that before? And you know, it's, it's an interesting verse because there's only a few things in the Bible that says God is you know, so it says things, it talks about what God does in the Bible. It talks about um, what God is like, what his characteristics are. But very few times where it says God is something. And so those are pretty important. And what it really means is that, is that this is something that is inherently true about God. That God is, by his very nature, love. Now, how can that be? You know, one of the things that makes Christianity unique and, and so powerful, the, the concepts and the realities of our faith, is that God is not simply singular. 
I know we've heard about the Trinity. We've talked about uh, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But uh, one of the things that is really important about that concept, and, and it's unique compared to all the religions, there's no other religion that has God as a Trinity, uh, is that you, in other religions, you either have God who is singular. So if you think about Islam, even Judaism, you know, there's one God, monotheistic, right? And this God is the creator of everything. And so what that means is that before this God, ex- before this God created, he was alone. So if you're all alone, you have no relationships, you don't have anyone to interact with, can you love? Can you be loved? Of course you can't. You can't love without another person around. And then there's other religions, you know, the, the, Greek, the Greek religion, the Roman religion, the, you know, uh, Hinduism, where you have this multiplicity of gods. But one of the things that you see in all these religions with the multiplicity of gods is that these gods oftentimes fight against each other. They're competing. They're not unified. They're not really loving. And then it plays out in the characteristics that they express. So you think of Zeus uh, in the in the ancient uh, Greek mythology. Zeus is not very loving. <laughs> Zeus. He, he basically comes to earth to take what he wants, to get what he wants, to exert his authority. But basically everything he does, he does for his own sake, not for the sake of others. But God of the Bible, God of, of the New Testament, is this trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my father and I recently did a video on this that we have on our YouTube channel uh, about the nature of the Trinity. And if you want to explore further the Trinity, I encourage you to check out that video. There's tons of great resources online. But I want to point out one aspect of the Trinity uh, as it relates to this idea of God being love. So the Trinity is described as God, singular, that there's one nature that is God, but there's three persons who each have that nature. Now, in all of our experience, uh, each individual person has an individual nature. And none of us share the exact same nature. So it's not just uh, that my name is Stephen. There's something about Stephen Johnson that describes who I am. I, there might be another person out there named Stephen Johnson, but he's not the same person that I am. Right? We are distinct. Best over there. Uh-huh. He sure isn't. <laughs> you know, th- this kind of uh, amalgam, co- a conglomeration of attributes and characteristics and ways of thinking and ways of interacting that are unique to each and every one of us, that is our nature. And then who we are, our person, our being, that is unique as well. And so there's one person with one nature every single time put together in a complete whole. But with God... There's three persons, but one nature. And that image that you see up there is uh, it's, it's an ancient image that refers to and relates to the nature of the Trinity. And so one of the things that you see is it's almost like it's a triangle and a circle, right? And so each point of the triangle is a different person of what we call the Godhead or a different person of the Trinity. And yet they are each fully and completely God. By themselves, each one is God, they don't combine to become God. It's not like Voltron where, you know, all the pieces come together, they combine and they create a new thing. No, each of them is fully God. And yet, they have one shared nature. 
So they can't just separate from themselves or from each other. Uh, it, it would be impossible. So they, that's unique in the universe. There's no other thing like it. But one of the things also that's important about this is, is that early on the church fathers recognized that there was, some, there was this interrelationship between one member of the Trinity and the others. And it's that they actually are somehow in each other and that Jesus is in the Father. Actually, I have a, a, a verse here related to that. You know, in John 17, 21, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you, and, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Now, Let's focus just for a moment on the, you know, you are in me and I am in you. There is this sense in which there is, a, there is a, a, an entering in of one into the other. And if Jesus were also mentioning the Holy Spirit there, I'm certain he would pray, and I am in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit is in me, and you are in the Holy Spirit. And so the, the ancient Greek-speaking church fathers used this term, perichoresis, and it means to go around in a dance. And it's the idea that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, they're interacting with one another constantly. And it's almost like they have this little choreographed dance going on, this perfect, beautiful, wonderful dance where their love for one another is filling one another at all times, constantly, without fail. This certainly illustrates to us the severity of Jesus being on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all eternity, theologians believe that Jesus was not experiencing the fullness of the love of his Father and the love of the Spirit. In that moment, he was actually experiencing wrath and judgment as he took our sins upon himself on the cross. But from all eternity past and for all eternity future, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have this perfect relationship with one another. They love each other. They're not lacking in any way. One of the ancient characteristics that the church has used for God is this idea that he is not lacking. He is perfectly complete within himself. And that can't be true for the pantheon of gods in, in the religions, the ancient religions of, of Greece and Rome and and uh, uh, India and different places. And it can't be true of the God of Islam or even the understanding of God that Judaism had where it's just one God. That God can't be complete in himself because he has no relationship. He cannot be inherently loving. So when the New Testament says that God is love, it's saying that it is just a complete, inherent, by nature Characteristic of God. It is not something he became when he created. It is not something that he musters up. It is, it is not the result of him being the creator. It is actually the cause of him being the creator. So you imagine God in this wonderful dance. And have you ever been to one of those, uh, you know, whether it's one of, you know, the kind of dancing, uh, I forget what they call it, like in in uh, the Jane Austen novels. They go to these dances and they, they do, is it contra dancing or what is it called? Anyone? No. But it's these line dances and they're going in and out and they're switching partners and everyone who knows the steps, it looks beautiful to watch, right? But what's more fun than doing that? It's doing it with more people, right? It's actually more fun to have a bigger line doing those dances. 
And when I was growing up, my parents actually taught country line dancing, which is very similar, but different kind of music, right? And so I learned these country line dances because my parents would drag me along. Sometimes there were ladies there without a partner. And they'd say, Stephen, get in here. You're going to dance. So, you know, I would be shooting hoops at the court in our, in our gym where we were doing it. And I'd get called over to go dance with the ladies who didn't have partners. Um, and, but it was a lot of fun. And we do this line dance. And then you switch partners and go back and forth. But the more people you had, the better it was. And it's beautiful to watch, right? So God was so loving, so inherently he is love, that he, not, he didn't need someone to love. He had someone to love. But he thought, you know, why don't we invite more people into this love? And that's what Jesus is praying. He says, I, I'm in you. You're in me. May they also be in us. Isn't that beautiful? God didn't create so he would have someone to love. He loved so much so he created more. This is the kind of love that we have. And, and this is totally, again, totally unique. Um, there's no other vision of God. There's no other idea of God that can be, this can be true about unless it's a God that's one in nature but three in persons. But not only is he inherently love, he then shows us his love. And in John uh, chapter 4, let's actually, um, I'm sorry, I, I should have started reading in verse 7. <laughs> in verse 7 it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's where that phrase comes from. And he repeats it again later. But then he goes on to say, this is how God showed his love for us. So now love is not just an experience of emotion. It's not just a good feeling. Because you think about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it must feel really good to be in that kind of relationship, right? I mean, can you imagine if, uh, for those of you who are married, imagine if your marriage were such that you always felt fully loved by your partner and they always felt fully loved by you and that you had this beautiful dance going on and nothing could break the choreography. I don't know about you, but I break the choreography on a regular basis. You know, but God doesn't. But imagine that type of love. But then it doesn't just stop there. God then displays his love. God shows his love in the incarnation by sending Jesus. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So Jesus, you know, we said the Trinity is unique. It's three persons with one nature. No other example of that in the universe. Well, Jesus is also unique among the uniqueness because Jesus is the only example of one person with two natures. So Jesus is fully God, but then he becomes fully human. And it's not that he blends them together. You know, he doesn't just, you don't just take God and humanity and stick it in your ninja and start it up. It's, it's, it's not half and half, right? It's not like, you know, pepperoni on one side and eggplant on the other. It's, he's fully God and he's fully human at the exact same time. 
And none of us have ever experienced anything like that either. We're only used to one person, one nature. And all of the examples that we try to give, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, about the Trinity. Sometimes I'm acting as a father to my children. Sometimes I'm acting as a husband to my wife. Sometimes I'm acting as a pastor to the church. That just doesn't even come close to the nature of the Trinity. And at the same time, it doesn't even come close to describing one person with two complete, distinct, but perfectly aligned natures. And that's what Jesus has. Now, how does this show God's love for us, though? Well, first of all, God loved us so much that he became one of us. He wasn't okay with us being distant and separate and distinct from him in such a profound way. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what we're going to do. I don't know how he talks. I don't know if he uses personal, like plural or singular, but this is what God does. He says, here's what we're going to do. The son, Jesus, the son, is going to become human in every way. And that way, God, we, will be able to know what it's like to be one of you. Doesn't it always make you feel good when someone goes out of their way to understand your experience? Doesn't it always feel good to know that someone will come alongside you into your journey, into your difficulties, into your hardships and walk with you? That's what God did in Jesus. He becomes like us. He became one of us. He identifies with us so that we would know how much we're loved. You know, we see this happen uh, in different uh, ways in the world. You know, very, one very simple one. If you, if you ever work with little children and a child comes to you, especially if they're upset, first thing you do is you get down on your knee and you get on eye level with them. And you say, what's, what's going on? And it's just one way to connect with that child at their level, right? Imagine if it were possible when a little five-year-old comes up to you crying to make yourself five years old and say, I'm with you in this. That's kind of like what Jesus did. In fact, uh, you can imagine that doing that, obviously we can't do it, but if we could do it, a lot of us would not want to do it because a lot of us wouldn't want to be five years old again. Some of us, right? There's some aspects of that that would be fun, but imagine uh, you can't drive anymore. <laughs> you, can't, um, you can't work and earn money. You can't uh, use your, your debit card at the store. They're not going to let a five-year-old come in with a debit card. You know, like these things, you lose some privileges, wouldn't you? But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Philippians 2, Paul writes, he says, I want you to have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That used to his own advantage is very uh, difficult translation. Some translate it, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, he, He willingly let it go. Uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Uh, he, he released it. And basically the idea is that Jesus, as God, has all these prerogatives in the universe because, hey, he created it. It's his. And yet he decided to release those prerogatives 
to submit himself to a greater goal, a greater purpose. And what did he do? He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, I don't know if you're a little offended by Paul describing Jesus becoming human as being made nothing. But if you think about the, the, the gap between God and man, you know, you think about, what, like, what could you imagine being turned into that you would say, no, I don't want to be a slug, right? What a, what a drop in status that would be, from being a human to a slug. So if a drop in humanity to slug status is represented like this, then from God to human would be like way up here. <laughs> to be an infinite, eternal being to now being a finite, limited, and very needy human being is a big drop. But Jesus does it willingly. He's not coerced by the Father. He's not just following orders. Remember, they share the same nature. They're perfectly united in everything. And actually, in Jesus' humanity is the only time he, and the first time that he struggles to do the will of the Father. We see that expressed. Before he goes to the cross, he says, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so even in his weakness, he is fully aligned with the Father. So God shows us this. He, he gives up his prerogatives. He gives up his rights as God to become human. So that, again, we would know how much we're loved. He's putting his love into action. He's backing up his words, right? You know, he's not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. But then God goes one more step. And if we look back at our First uh, John passage again, in First John 4.10, it says this. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, what John is saying here is, yes, we do love God, but really what displays love is not what we do for the Lord. It's what the Lord has done for us. He has given himself up as a sacrifice for, for our own redemption, right? It says that he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus not only uh, has this, in Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, not only have this perfect loving relationship with themselves that they then created us to invite us into, but then Jesus himself becomes human, identifying with us in every possible way, yet without sin. It's the only difference. But tempted in every way, identifies with us, understands our difficulties and our pain. And then, not only that, but then Jesus submitted to on the cross to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be redeemed, so that we could have atonement. Do you know what the word atone means? It actually comes from a Middle English word, two words, and it's really obvious once I tell you. It just means at one. We are now at one with God. We now have unity with the Lord. What does unity mean? just a Latin word for one, unis. What Jesus did is that he became a sacrifice so that we who were actually enemies of God 
could now have that same type of perfectly choreographed love dance with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they've enjoyed from all eternity. In fact, it says so in uh, the book of Romans. It says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the picture. You've got God in heaven, perfect relationship with himself, with the other members of the Trinity, right? This beautiful dance. God creates humanity so he can share the dance with more people. But we know the story. Did we join in the dance? I'm guessing maybe we did for about a week. (laughs) I joke about Adam and Eve. I think they were in the garden a very short amount of time. As my evidence, they had no children while they were there. How long would it take you to be with a perfect marriage partner before one of someone got pregnant? I'm just saying they were not there that long. Stepped out of the steps of the dance. They broke the choreography. And then what God has been doing ever since is he's been on a mission to bring us back into the dance, to bring us back into that perfect love. If you look at all the Old Testament, it's God's work to prepare people for the coming of Christ so that they would be able to receive him and get back into the dance. And all of the challenges and hardships and everything that we face is what the Bible says the world The flesh, meaning our own sinful hearts, and the devil working overtime to keep us out of the dance. To keep us out of the love of God. But in Christ, God literally suffered on our behalf to pay for all of our shortcomings, to all of our sins, to make us at one, to atone, to bring us back to Himself. That's love. That is love. There's no greater act of love. This is love. Not that we love God, that he was a sacrifice for us, an atoning sacrifice for us. And so uh, the goal of all this book, the goal of the whole story, is to bring us into unity once again with the Trinity. And if you read the Bible that way, and you see that story going through from beginning to end, then all these different pieces start to make a lot more sense. That's why there's a wedding at the end of the Bible. After Jesus comes back and takes us up to heaven, there's this big wedding feast, a wedding banquet. God is bringing us back as his bride. And so he's been preparing all this time for his own wedding with us. And what does it say in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve get married? Moses, who writes that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that, uh, that uh, this, is why a man, uh, this is why a man and woman will leave their father and mother and cleave to one another, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is a picture of the unity that God has. It's actually a picture of the Trinity. Because what happens is in marriage, you've got two people who come together and literally and figuratively and spiritually become one flesh. So literally, 
you can you can look around the room and see three of our one fleshes in this room, <laughs> our children, right? This is a picture of the Trinity. Uh, also, we should, in, in the greatest of circumstances, when we're when we're more ably entering the dance that God created for us, you'll see this emotional and friendship connection that we have. And then spiritually, God has united us as one spiritually in the, in the covenant that we make before him on our wedding day. So there's all these pictures of that type of intimacy in marriage. Same thing is true for children or adoption. You know, God adopts us into his family. You know, if you were to look, if we were to kind of go back and look at that uh, picture of the Trinity with the three uh, elements, the three sides, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what God does through our salvation is that he adopts us into our family and he pegs us onto that corner where Jesus is and we get access to that whole beautiful dance through Jesus Christ because we're now his brothers and sisters, right? And so all these things, they all point to the same direction. Well, if all of this is true, and, and by the way, you know, we're just touching the surface of the love of God, right? I mean, there's so many places in Scripture that we could jump to and look at. But if all of this is true, then what would be the natural result? Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That makes sense, right? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him, and he in us. So again, this language of being in one another. So Jesus uses it, now John's using it. He has given us his spirit. So you remember I was saying that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Spirit is in the Son and the Son is in the Spirit? Well, now the Spirit is in us. And Jesus in that priestly prayer in John 17 says that we are in Him. And then in other places, He says, Abide in me and I will abide in you. This entering in language is so common, but if we're not alert to it, we'll just miss it. The Spirit is in us. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. It's the same language. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want to stop there for a moment because sometimes we get the wrong idea about this verse. Having love does not mean that you don't ever fear anything. Okay? You can be the most loved person on the planet. Jesus was the most loved person on the planet. He knew completely that the Father loved him. Yet when he faced the cross, he was afraid. Right? This is okay. If a bear comes, don't say, I have love. I'm not afraid of you. No, you run. Right? But here's what it says. In the context, this is what it's saying. It's talking about judgment. Right? 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And he had just said that this is how we know that when um, that love is complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So what this is saying is that it's kind of like this. I remember when I was a teenager, I had, even more than I do now, a bit of a lead foot. And I picked up my friend one day at his house, and we got in, our car, in my car, my mom's car, and we were driving to the mall. But I said, let's take the back roads because there's lots of good hills. And let's see if we can get that nice little feeling on the hills, on the hills, right? So here I am on a two-lane back road uh, outside of Memphis in the suburbs. And I'm going, well, the officer said I was going 83 miles per hour. I think he probably got me at a low point. So he's coming this way. I'm going that way, 83 miles an hour. He turns his spins around, chases me, pulls me over, takes me out of the car, puts me in the back of his car, and calls my parents. Luckily, my parents answered. They came and picked me up. I wasn't actually technically arrested, but I was in the back of the car. I remember my dad said, I have a question for you when he picked me up. The police officer said that you were in the back of the car singing. What, why were you singing? He thought you weren't taking this very seriously. And I said, and I was actually singing like this worship song. And I was like, no, I just needed to stay calm. I, it just helped me stay calm to sing that worship song. And there was a piece of this where I knew that the love of my heavenly father and the love of my earthly father, even though I had done, I was in the back of a cop car, I was going to be okay. I knew that I was loved. I knew that the worst that would happen is they would get upset at me, but I wasn't going to be beaten. I wasn't going to be kicked out of the house. I wasn't going to be, you know, uh, stretched out like a, like a, a Middle Ages prisoner on the rack. I knew that it would be okay because I knew I was loved. That's what it's talking about. I should have been scared driving on those hills at 83 miles an hour. Love doesn't prevent that. I should have been scared of that. It was dangerous. I didn't have to be scared of being rejected by my Father on earth or my Father in heaven. That's what love does. That's what it means that there's no fear in love, that love casts out fear. The fear of judgment, the fear of retribution, the fear that you will not be accepted by the Father when the day of judgment comes. This is what's so powerful about the love of God. You know, I mentioned that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they not only love perfectly, but they also receive love perfectly. If we could receive God's love the way God receives his own love, we would never be afraid of those things. In fact, we wouldn't be afraid of dying, so if you do see a bear and you don't run, you might be afraid that you'll get hurt, but don't be afraid of dying because only good will come to you in that circumstance only good because the Father will receive you. So if you are facing an enemy who's telling you deny Christ or I'll chop your head off that's an easy one. I mean it'll be hard but if you know the love of God 
you'll know what to do. That, that, really, isn't, that really isn't a difficult decision in the sense of, uh, you know, in a clear moment, you'll know what to do. Again, it'll be scary, but you won't have to fear that if your head gets chopped off that you're not going to be received by God. You know, these things in life, they don't have the power that we thought they did. So then, what, but what is the point here? Verse 19 now says, we love because he first loved us. So the natural response for a believer when they know and understand and receive the love of God is to then be a person of love. It's the only reasonable thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense. So how do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us right here, first, love one another. (laughs) Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why? Because we should look like the Trinity. We should look like that dance. And here's the thing. You don't have to wait for eternity to enter into the dance. You don't have to wait until you go to heaven to start dancing with the Lord. You're going to get some steps wrong, okay? You're going to mess up the choreography here and there. Sometimes, I remember we were with a group that was dancing at, a, at an event. It was a Christian event we were doing, and they did the contra dancing. And there were some people who were like, I don't want to dance. <laughs> and they, they just left. But then you know what? We kind of like got into it. We got like, hey, just come and dance with us. And they would do one song, and then they'd go sit down again. It'll be like that in your face, too. Sometimes you'll just get out of the dance. But God's going to come to you and say, hey, come dance with us. Come back into the dance. And I think there are probably some of you, either here or, or watching at home, who've been hurt by trying to love one another. And you're saying, I'm done with this dance, at least for a while. Or, I want to get back in the dance, but I'm scared to get back in the dance. Because sometimes, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're really stretching the metaphor, but sometimes you get your toes stepped on when you're dancing. Sometimes someone steps on your toes. Sometimes you ask someone to dance and they say no. It's like the middle school dance nightmare, right? You want to dance with that person and they say no, I don't want to dance with you. And it hurts. And so you think, I'm never going to dance again. Guys, you all know, some of you who know me know, I hate dancing in front of people. I hate it. I feel so self-conscious. I don't like it. But you know what? We all need to dance. We all need to dance literally, and we all need to dance spiritually. It's a good thing. So we love one another. We're, we're, we're being a loving community when we love one another, and our community starts to look like heaven right here on earth. We start to imitate the dance that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are doing right here on earth. And what does that do? Man, that makes us really attractive people love watching dancing don't they the, the, the literal kind and the spiritual kind I wish they had a so you think you could dance for Christians that was all about loving one another how cool would that be we just watch people see how, who can love someone else the most that would be a cool show well we can also follow Jesus' example and we can sacrificially serve one another 
Because love is not just a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is an action. So we put others first. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2? I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's the mindset? Well, he gave up everything so that he could go serve others. And we didn't read the whole passage, but it says he took on the likeness of a human being, and then he submitted himself not only to that, but he became a slave to all, and then submitted himself even to death on the cross. What happens next? God raises him up and gave him a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul wants us to have the same mindset as Jesus when we give everything up to serve others, and he also wants us to have the same mindset as Jesus knowing that if we put ourselves low for someone else, the Father will raise us up. We don't have to elevate ourselves. Our culture says, you know, build your platform, build your, you know, build your everything. You know, you got to raise yourself up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Nobody pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. God is at work in your life. God will raise you up. He will raise you up. And then it's here, but it's not as clear in 1 John 4, but it is there, is that we'll love God. And I phrase these things as, now you can love one another. God's love empowers it. Now you can live sacrificially. God's love empowers it. Now you can love God. Not that we loved him, but he loved us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. The Bible says we were enemies of God when Christ died for us. But now, because of God's love, we're able to love him. You know, Jesus says in a parable, he who is forgiven much loves much. I think one of the reasons that we don't love God more is that we don't realize how far away from him we were. We don't realize how far we had fallen. And we don't realize the sacrifice Jesus made to bring us from that and to make us at one with his Father in heaven. So love the Lord. How do you do that? Well, how do you, how do you love, how do you show love to a new uh, a new love interest, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. You look for time to spend together. You seek it out. You, it's, it sounds silly, but you spend time just looking at each other. There's a little exercise that Sonia and I have tried where we just stare in each other's eyes. And you know what? It's really uncomfortable. But it builds a bridge it does and you can gaze into the eyes of Christ you can do it in your prayer you can do it not just by speaking to him by listening to him you can do it through the word you, you really can gaze into the things of the Lord and not just the things of the Lord but into the Lord Paul says that as we look into his face more fully we'll be transformed Paul believes that you can look into the eyes of God and this is where by the way great joy comes you know the definition of joy we use is that joy is someone being happy to be with you joy is knowing that you are accepted joy is knowing that you belong that's the definition of joy that we use with Christ you always know that he's happy to be with you you always know that you're accepted you always know that you belong and you might think I mean I've heard it so many times is God happy with you when you sin you know what He's not happy that you're sinning, but he's happy with you. How do I know? Because God knew you were going to sin, and he still died for you. 
and you're clothed in Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees his perfect, unblemished son, or perfect, unblemished daughter, and he's happy that you're with him. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us to come with boldness before the throne of grace in our time of need. Because God wants us there. What's your time of need? When you're failing, when you're sinning, when you've screwed it all up, come with boldness to the throne of grace. You know, it's like, uh, uh, the, you know, the, if you have, I'm, I had an example, and I just forgot the, the specific example, but you, you kind of imagine like a very important person up speaking in front of a huge crowd of thousands and thousands. If, if Joe Schmo out of the crowd said, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute, their security would come and tackle him and take him away because, no, like, I'm busy. <laughs> but if your little kid runs up on the stage, what is he going to do? Pick him up, hug him, smile, you know, delight in him. And he'll tell that huge crowd, hold on a moment. This is my son. This is my daughter. So you mess everything up. Who cares? You're his kid. You get to do that. Come boldly. In that type of welcome, loving, joyful relationship, that's where your life is transformed. That's where maturity happens. That's where growth happens. That's where change and transformation happen is in that place of knowing that you're loved, knowing you're accepted, being in that warm embrace. Open up to God. Be vulnerable with Him. Right? If you want to deepen your relationship with your spouse, be vulnerable. If you want to deepen your relationship with a friend, be vulnerable. If you want to deepen your relationship with God, be vulnerable. Join him in his work in the world. What is God doing? God's going out loving all these people. He's doing these things that we just described. You go do the same. Go do the same. And then finally, as you know, there's no fear in love, right? Live in confidence. Live in peace. I love this quote. Sonia found it. Uh, she was reading and she shared it with me by Brennan Manning. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brennan Manning. He's um, an interesting and powerful, um, I guess you would say, teacher, writer, writes about the things of God. He's passed away, but uh, he wrote this book called The Furious Longing of God, and it's all about God's great love for you. Listen to that title again. The furious longing of God. And in that book, he says that if he had to do his whole life over again to become a spiritual uh, a person, he says, you know, all the spiritual disciplines and all the prayer, and, you know, that's all good. But you know what else I would do more? I would, I would go to the mountains more. I would swim and jump and laugh more. And he says, all you have to do in life is do the next thing in love. Which is different from doing the next loving thing, which is also important. Do the next loving thing. But do the next thing knowing that you are loved. Do the next thing in the love of God. Do the next thing knowing that God delights in you and that he, he actually is excited when you go into the mountains, that he loves it when you, uh, on a whim, jump into the river and swim. Right, that he loves to see you with friends laughing. Right, that these, these experiences of life, 
they are they can be done in the love of God and they can be done in the love of God with love for one another right don't don't do them alone it's really amazing when we see God's love for us and then we know that we can love the Bible says like he did like he does and it may seem like it's too hard but his love will empower you to love others so I just close with this God shows his love in his nature he's a triune God he's inherently loving he shows his love in the incarnation he became like us to identify with us because he cared about us so much and he shows his love in our redemption that he would sacrifice himself us sacrifice himself for us to make us at one to atone for our sins make us at one with himself and since he loves us we can now love like he did let's pray